Well, it's wonderful to be with you folks again. Ninth time in nine months. This is an absolute record for me. Let's pray before we turn to the Word. Father, we thank you that you are here by your Spirit and you desire us to bless us. You desire us to give us something more and you've given us so much already. We praise you for all the gifts you've given us and all the things you've given us to understand from your word and enable us to serve you in different ways. And we ask now for the help of your spirit, for speaker and listeners, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you like picnics? Hmm, not much response to that one. Uh, <laughs> well, I remember in my boyhood days picnics. You went out to the country armed with a travelling rug to sit on the grass and there was a basket with good stuff in it to eat and drink. And I liked tomato sandwiches and uh, cookies with lots of jam in them. Now we know from the scriptures that the disciples of Jesus were not strangers to picnics. Um, there was the occasion when the Lord fed 4,000 people and another occasion when he led, fed 5,000 people and more on a small, small amount of food. It was absolutely miraculous. There's another occasion we're going to look at this morning, which we might not put in quite the same category as the feeding of the four or five thousand. But it was a picnic. Let's read the opening part of John chapter 21. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, but they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there, with fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon son of John, 
Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And he said to him, Follow me. Let's begin by putting a heading to the first part, Revelation, that was given. Now the word revelation is an interesting word and an important word in scripture. Imagine you've booked into a hotel in somewhere in Germany or somewhere else and uh, you've arrived after dark and you've gone to your room and the curtains were drawn and you went to bed and you got up in the morning and you pulled the curtains open and whoa, look at that. I didn't realize there were buildings like these just across the road from this hotel. I didn't realize there were mountains in the background. Oh, that's magnificent. That's revelation. Because these things were there all the time. They were there the night before when you landed in the dark. The curtains were drawn and it was dark. You didn't see them. And that's what happens every time God gives us a little more, a little more of revelation. It's like he's pulling the curtains a bit further open and saying, hey, look at that, look at that, look at that. And it's been there all the time. But you hadn't seen it before. Now here in verse, uh, verse 1, we're told afterwards Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And in verse 14, there's a kind of summing up of what's been happening that morning, when John says this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And the word that is translated here, appeared, is a word that means to make visible, in other words, something that was invisible, you couldn't see it, has now been made visible. And therefore it means to reveal in the sense we've just been talking about. Let's think for a moment at the, about the time when this occurred. It seems a bit harsh perhaps to say this, but in a sense it was a time of disobedience. Why? Because you see... Jesus had called Simon and his brother Andrew and James and John. He'd called that partnership, that foursome, away from the fishing industry. That was now in the past, and really it was meant to stay there. But Peter, impulsive though he always was, just couldn't stand this hanging around any longer. He got itchy feet. Now, if you're like me, you don't like waiting either. A queue in the doctor's surgery or anywhere else. <laughs> you keep looking at your watch. Why am I having to wait so long? Well, Peter was a bit like that. He got itchy feet and couldn't stand this kind of inactivity. And so I had a bright idea. I'll have a night fishing. So he told the others who were with him, I'm going out to fish. And they said, well... We'll come with you. And out they went and fished all night. 
Now we know from the record in the Gospels that our Lord Jesus had warned Simon Peter that Simon Peter would deny his Lord that night when Jesus was betrayed. And Simon protested strongly that he would never do that. He would die before he would do that. And Jesus said, well, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And we know from the gospel records, of course, it happened exactly that way. And Peter was absolutely heartbroken. He went out and wept bitterly. Now, we know that after Jesus was crucified, the Apostle John took Peter back to his place uh, to keep an eye on him. Maybe he was afraid that it might be two suicides and not one because Judas committed suicide, but Simon Peter was probably on the edge after his denial of Jesus. But then we read, you see, that when the women went to the tomb on Sunday morning and met an angel, and the angel said to them, Jesus is not here, he's risen, and go and tell his disciples and Peter. So it was very important that Peter should be made aware that Jesus had risen from the dead. And we know that Peter and John ran together to the sepulchre and found the evidence of Jesus being risen from the dead. We also know that on the evening of that Easter day, the two who returned from their home in Emmaus, having been joined by Jesus on the road to Emmaus, didn't recognize him. And then when they gave him supper and he broke the bread and they saw his hands at the table, they recognized him and he vanished. And they walked seven miles back to Jerusalem. And they found the disciples and the others in the upper room, and they were saying, it's true, it's true. Jesus has been raised, and he's appeared to Peter. Now, we know nothing about that meeting with Peter except one thing, that it happened. We can imagine what happened. We can imagine Peter pouring out his heart and apologizing as profusely as he possibly could, repenting of his awful failure to identify himself with Jesus. Ashamed, he must have been deeply ashamed. But we can imagine Jesus giving Peter the biggest hug he'd ever had in his life. And saying, Peter, I know what you've done. I warned you you'd do it. You just don't know how weak you are. I forgive you absolutely, completely. You're a forgiven man. Now, here is Peter on this fishing trip, which really was going back, in a sense, to the old life. It wasn't just a time of disobedience, it was a time of disappointment. Because we're told by John that they went out in the boat and all night long they fished the lake and they caught nothing. Now we do know that back in Luke 5 when we read about Jesus borrowing Simon's boat to use as a kind of floating platform to address the crowds and then turning to Simon Peter and saying, launch out into the deep for a draft to catch a fish. And Peter said, oh, oh, we've toiled all night and have taken nothing. Well, that occasion recorded in Luke 5, and this occasion recorded three years later, is the exception to the rule. Happened, but very, very rarely did it happen. The Sea of Galilee was teeming with fish, and to go out for a night's fishing and catch nothing was almost impossible. But it happened again on that evening when Peter took his friends out to fish. A time of disappointment. Oh. Well, sometimes the Lord allows us to experience serious disappointment. We build up our hopes on something that we would like to have or do and it just all goes wrong. 
and it upsets us because it was something we really looked forward to and we hoped to enjoy and it didn't happen and we experience this thing we call disappointment that's life in a sense, that's part of life but sometimes, not always, but sometimes it happens when the Lord is teaching us a lesson when we go off at a tangent when we go off and do something off our own bat without consulting the Lord as something important, as something serious we should never have embarked on it without asking the Lord's permission whether or not he wanted us to do this but no, we didn't do that and he allows us to experience sometimes deep, painful disappointment to teach us that when we don't consult him and we don't involve him things will sometimes go horribly wrong in John 15 Jesus had told the disciples apart from me without me you can do nothing it's a hard lesson to learn most of us are a bit headstrong and like to have our own way and like to make our own plans and seek to bring them to pass and we have to learn when we become disciples of Jesus without him don't even try it don't even try it without me you can do nothing so this fishing trip that proved such a massive failure was not just a time of disobedience and disappointment the time when it occurred but also in this whole experience of that morning there is the truth that was portrayed through what happened let me draw your attention to two things the truth of Jesus' power was displayed through what we read a moment ago. Did you look for any miracles as I read the scripture? Did you notice any miracles? Well, I suggest to you there are no less than four miracles in this passage. What's the first one? The first one was the one that I've hinted at already. There were no fish. And the lake was teeming with fish. And it seems that the Lord Jesus kept every fish out of that boat's nets all night long. Because he wanted them to be reminded that without him you can do nothing. Miracle number one. Miracle number two. When eventually they were almost ashore and Jesus called out, have you any fish? And they gave a kind of blunt answer, no. I said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Some. My goodness, some. There were 153 and they were all big ones. Wow. Miracle number two. <coughs> Miracle number three. The net was not torn. The fishing boats, the fish, the Sea of Galilee were not enormous boats, they didn't have enormous nets and the nets used in that kind of fishing and that kind of water would never have contained, coped with 153 big fish without tearing because after all back in Luke 5 when they had a similar experience of catching an awful lot of fish miraculously after fishing all night and catching nothing at that point we're told their nets began to, to, to break with a catch but not this time. A miracle? Well, it seems to have been. And what's that teaching us? 
teaching us, I suggest, an important principle. Because, you see, every now and then we hear about Christians, especially people like me, pastors and, and, and preachers, who suffer what is usually called burnout. Something happens in their life and they just, they just collapse. They've just gone all out, perhaps well-intentioned, their hearts in the right place, wanted to serve the Lord, in some sort of scholarly situations, wanted to care for vast congregations, far, far too many to be cared for by one or two men. And they experience burnout. They're out of action as a result. But you see, when we do things in God's time, in God's way, under God's anointing, the nets are not torn, generally speaking. Well, there may be occasional exceptions, but generally speaking, we can expect the Lord to keep us functioning. When he calls us into his service, we should not expect to be knocked out through some kind of burnout experience. I'm never tired of saying now and again when I'm preaching. The way to serve the Lord effectively is not by overwork. It's not about long, long, long hours where you end up thinking, well, I'm, I'm serving this congregation really well. I'm, I'm working a 60 or 70 hour week. They don't deserve it, etc., etc. That's not the way. It's simply not the way. Overwork is not the way. What is the way? The work is overcoming by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the feeding on the Word and practicing the Word, and overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not overworking. It's overcoming and overflowing that gets the job done. Hmm. So, coming back to this business of doing what the Lord tells us to do and not embarking on bright ideas of our own. It is very, very significant that from one little portion of Scripture we learn this lesson. Where in John chapter 5 Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the Son himself can do nothing by himself. Here's the same principle, you see. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever his father's doing, the son also does. But the father loves the son and shows him all he does. I may have said this to you before here, I don't know. It's so good in the morning to ask the Lord for his agenda. Huh. Lord, what are you doing today that you want me to be involved in? Because Christians all too often tend to tell the Lord, this is what I'm doing today, and would you care to join me? Would you like to bless this thing? And the Lord said, hmm, not one of my plans, I'm afraid. It makes so much sense to ask for the Lord's agenda. And the fact that the Son of God, in his earthly ministry, did only what he saw his father doing. He'd get up in the morning and he'd pray and he'd say, Father, what's on your agenda today? What do you want me to be up to today? What's really going to be happening today from your point of view? What do you want to accomplish? I'm available. It's a good way to approach serving the Lord. The reality of Jesus' power to keep all the fish out 
to bring 153 large ones in to make sure the net didn't tear. But there's also the sufficiency of Jesus' provision. There was something perfect about what Jesus had provided for these frustrated fishermen. They got ashore and they found that a fire of burning coals was there with fish on it and some bread. These guys had been out fishing all night and were no doubt cold in the morning air and Jesus has prepared a fire. They had fished all night and they were probably starving, really hungry. And Jesus has provided food. And they came in probably, probably in a thoroughly bad mood. What a waste of time we had last night. That's all your fault, Peter, for suggesting this silly fishing trip. And they came in grumpy and a bit bad mood. And they find that the Lord Jesus is there offering them his wonderful friendship and fellowship and company. Oh, didn't take them long to brighten up, I imagine. Hmm? The provision he made for them. And then here's something that doesn't come out in English. We're told that Jesus took bread and fish. He came and he took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. But the English translation doesn't bring out the fact that he took a loaf and if you remember the stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, the loaves were not like our loaves. They were not great big mother's pride things. They were little things like bigger than usual rolls. Oh. So he took a loaf, one of these not very big loaves, and he took a fish, the Greek says, and it was a small one according to the Greek. Oh. He took a little loaf and a small fish and with that he fed seven hungry men. How about that for a miracle? Mm. So Jesus is very much in the business of multiplication. I'm not prophesying this might never happen but it's not impossible that six months from now you might have to move out of here because you would have so many folk who couldn't get them all in this hall. I don't know. But Jesus does give extraordinary multiplication sometimes, not just of bread and fish. And by the way, bread and fish always seem to be on Jesus' agenda, on his menu. Interesting. Yes, bread and fish. Anyway, there's four miracles for you. Then, eh? Good. Now, let's go on to after breakfast. After breakfast, Peter... Simon Peter may have wandered off a little bit from the rest or Jesus may have taken him aside and was having a one-to-one -one talk with Simon Peter. Same thing had happened, of course, the night Jesus was betrayed. He'd been talking to the disciples as a group in response to their appalling behaviour because they were arguing about which of them would be the greatest. And then he turned to Simon Peter and said, Simon, Simon, the devil, Satan, has desired, demanded to have all of you lot to sift you as wheat. But Simon, I've prayed for you, and it's a singular. I've prayed for you, Simon, and your faith will not fail. So again, he's taking Simon Peter aside, talking to him one to one. And this time, it's very significant. 
Think of the context in which this arose. You see, we know that when Peter had so shamefully denied Jesus, he had been admitted to the courtyard of the high priest's palace because John, who was with him at that point, Apostle John, knew somebody there and he went in and he said, oh, my friend's outside, can I bring him in? And they got permission for Peter to come in too. And there was a fire in the middle of the courtyard and the servants were warming themselves at the fire of the cold night. And Jesus is there warming himself. Not Jesus, but Peter's there warming, warming himself at that fire. What kind of fire was it? The charcoal fire. Again, the Greek helps us. It was a charcoal fire the night of the denial. It was a charcoal fire on the beach on this morning. Charcoal fire, distinct aroma from the burning charcoal. Oh, yes. Peter, the man he smelt that charcoal fire, was reminded of his terrible failure to confess Jesus as his Lord and friend. The charcoal fire served a purpose. He was taken back, reminded of his failure. Now Jesus doesn't take us back to remind us of our failures just to make us feel miserable. But sometimes if we are the least bit tempted to become rather vain and proud and pleased with ourselves, look what I have done. Jesus may well take us back in thought and memory to remember one of our worst ever failures one of our most serious sins. That's one way in which he keeps us humble. So Peter was reminded forcibly to the very aroma from the fire of his dismal, dismal failure. But you know, Peter was also reminded of his future. Because you see, he was addressed here by Jesus as Simon, son of John. And if we go back to John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 42, we read there of the time when Andrew, having met the Lord Jesus, comes back and tells his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. We've met the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. Why was he given a new name? What was wrong with Simon, son of John? Well, it was the name of his old life. A fisherman. Unsaved fisherman. But now he's becoming a disciple of Jesus, and he's got a glorious future he doesn't know about, but Jesus does. We give him a new name. You're going to be called Cephas or Peter. Cephas Aramaic, Peter Greek for a rock. And he wasn't rocky by nature. He was, he was pretty unpredictable by nature. But he was going to be stable as a new man in Jesus Christ. So he was reminded of his future. Right there, it's on the poster there on the banner banner. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you a future and a hope. That verse has become very, very often quoted by Christians in the last 30, 40 years. It's a very important verse because the Lord has plans for all his people. Our life is not meant to be haphazard. 
up and down and going nowhere around in circles. No, no. Our life is a life that has been planned by God. And here is Peter being made aware that he's failed and he's messed it up, but his old name has come to an end in a sense. And he was given at that point when he first met Jesus a hint of a new future in a new life with Jesus as Lord. It's interesting in this particular chapter of the Bible that so often the English translation doesn't really bring out the true meaning. And we've got a very important example of it here coming up. You see... There's the confession in which this whole thing resulted. What is it? Well, when Jesus takes Simon Peter aside, he questions him. But the question involves a one word, and Peter's answer involves another word. They appear in English as the same word, but they're not the same word. You see, in Greek there are at least three words for love. There is agape, which is heavenly love, divine love, supernatural love. And there is phile, from which we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. Mm. So let me give you this in what should be the true translation. When they would finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me, agape love, more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I'm very fond of you. In other words, I've got brotherly love for you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me, agape love? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know I'm really fond of you. Philadelphia love. Brotherly love. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus asked him, are you really fond of me? Do you really have that brotherly love for me? This I find very moving in a sense. He comes down to Peter's level to meet Peter where he is at. He's saying, in effect, if you cannot bring yourself, Peter, because of your shameful failure, if you cannot bring yourself to say, I love you with that wonderful heavenly love that you have for me, the best that Peter could say was, I'm very fond of you. I'm really, very fond of you. So Jesus comes down to Peter's level. That's just like our Lord, to meet us where we're at, not to hold some standard that's too high for us. And this time... Peter says, again, the same thing. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Are you really fond of me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I'm really fond of you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. This is a man who had failed so miserably. And you see, the test that Jesus applied before giving Peter these commissions to feed the lambs and feed the sheep and take care of the sheep, the test that Jesus gave Peter before commissioning him was not the faith test. 
It was not the ability test. It was not, do you think you've got enough gifting for this? It was not, is your faith strong enough for this? It was a love test. We come into the Christian life by love from God. We respond to that love by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout our whole Christian life we're we're, we're taught to live by faith, live by faith, exercise faith every day. Live by faith. But we're also taught in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love. Earlier in that letter Paul has written, these three remain, faith, love, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. In Ephesians 5 he says, live a life of love. And John says in 1 John 4, we love because he, God, first loved us. And it's interesting, you see, in that wonderful promise in Romans 8, 28, God is at work for the good. In all things, God is at work for the good. doesn't say of those who trust him, of those who love him, of those who love him, of those who love him, are called according to to his purpose Jesus gave the world one test to apply to the church to see whether we're genuine or fake you know what it is love one another as I have loved you by this all men everybody will know that you're my disciples if you love one another is it any surprise then that when Satan wants to mess up a church wants to bring division instead of unity he attacks us on that very point we, we stop loving some brother or sister in Christ we've fallen out with him we've disagreed with him they said something that was hurtful to us and our love goes out of the window and that's fatal fatal we cannot afford not to love the Lord and and love our brothers and sisters in Christ that's the secret of maintaining the spiritual unity God has given to us in Jesus so the question was asked and the question was answered now finally and briefly the commission that Peter received commission was to feed others feed my lambs feed my sheep care for my sheep take care of my sheep back in Psalm 142 the psalmist says something that perhaps we all feel from time to time the psalmist says there in 142 verse 4 no one is concerned for me no one cares for my life David was hiding in a cave at the time when these thoughts came into his mind Saul was out to kill him if he could and David indulged in a good dose of self pity nobody cares for me but that's one reason why people jump off bridges and in front of trains and so on I feel that nobody cares nobody cares the slightest bit for them they're in despair 
because you see we are programmed we're made by God to be loved love is so important in life and when any of us lapses into this self-pity mode and feel oh nobody cares about me if I wasn't here nobody would miss me it's not true for a start and it's not a good way to think because it pulls us down further into despair you remember what Moses experienced age 80 a call to his main work in life Exodus 3 tells us the Lord spoke to Moses and said I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers I'm concerned about their suffering so I have come down to rescue them ah that's the gospel in a nutshell isn't it God looks on suffering humanity God looks on his suffering creation not with indifference quite the opposite with concern, with compassion and in Jesus he came down literally came down to earth to do something about it and Moses heard the Lord say to him I'm concerned about my people and I'm sending you to bring them towards a life of freedom and that's part of our great privilege and responsibility as Christians to be serving the Lord doing these things that Peter was called to do to care for others to feed others people need to be fed not only physically but emotionally and spiritually some of you will remember the old hymn oh lead me Lord that I may lead the wandering and the wavering feet oh feed me Lord that I may feed thy hungering ones with manna sweet and you see it's not just pastors and preachers you know that it's the whole body of Christ the whole family of God are commissioned by God commissioned by our Lord Jesus to reach out in love and mercy to those around us and to minister to their needs and to seek to introduce them to Jesus who alone can meet their deepest needs and finally Peter was not just called to feed and care for others he was called to follow Jesus that's the call he answered more than three years before follow me and if we're going to be able to minister effectively to others we've got to stay close to Jesus there's no alternative we've got to stay close to Jesus I have lived through times when even as a pastor I was not living very close to Jesus and at these points in time I was not much help to anybody else that's the way it is if we're going to fulfill our great high calling in the Lord Jesus Christ to be his ambassadors, to be those who are his servants, reaching out with his love and his truth and his power. We've got to stay close to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We marvel at the things you do and the ways you operate to get our attention and to get through to us with the actual things you want us to learn and know and understand and experience. We thank you for the high honour you've given us. 
of being servants of the living Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we ask your forgiveness for the times when we've drifted and we've still been following, that we've followed Jesus from an unsafe distance. And Father, we ask that you will increase in our hearts the desire to live very close to our loving Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.